Hello, Dr. Tim Jordan here with Raising Daughters. And if you're the kind of parent who wants to be an influence in your daughter's life, and you want to remain an influence in your daughter's life now and forever, then you have come to the right place. Raising Daughters comes to you every week or two. Sometimes I'll add an extra one in there. And we talk about varying topics that have to do with raising daughters, about families, those sorts of things. And so today I, I decided to have an author on. Uh, his name is, is Rick Capriola, partly because he wrote a book that's called The Addicted Child, A Parent's Guide to Adolescent Substance Abuse, but also because I'm 57% Italian. I am assuming that Rick is at least partly Italian by his <laughs> last name. I assume, but he can tell us about that. I just did that 23 and me. I, I always thought I was half Italian, but I'm actually 57% Italian, which made me very happy. Um, so Rick, I want to have Rick tell you what he does. He's been working with, with adolescents and adults for about 20 years uh, with uh, addiction problems, with substance abuse kind of, kinds of problems. So I thought it'd be good to kind of pick his brains about what's going on for adolescents today as far as substance abuse and what you can do as their parents to know what's going on and also to support them. So Rick, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Tim. I, I greatly appreciate you uh, speaking with me today on, on this important topic. And you're absolutely right. Uh, I am Italian. Uh, uh, my father, uh, uh, his family came, uh, came from Italy a long time ago. So yes, uh, we, we, uh, we are Italian. Um, I got into this field um, after a long history of working in education for the state of Illinois. And while I was working there, I also uh, had a position uh, as a counselor in a regional mental health crisis center. Um, and we would have patients that were referred to us from the emergency room of hospitals, and they would stay for us for a time, and we provide services and counseling to them. And I began to notice that a high percentage of them not only had a mental health issue, but also had a substance abuse issue. So I went back to the University of Illinois and got a master's degree and more training uh, and become licensed as an addictions counselor. I continued to work at the crisis center for a number of years after uh, becoming becoming licensed as an addictions counselor until I accepted a position with Menninger Clinic in Houston, Texas. Mm. Menninger is a psychiatric hospital uh, located in Houston, Texas, that serves both adolescents and adults. And I was hired as an addictions counselor by Menninger Clinic, and I worked on their adult unit and their adolescent unit, providing addiction services, counseling, assessments, groups um, uh, for adolescents. And I was with Menninger for about 11 years. And I retired a little over a year ago from Menninger and set about to write this book um, because I had met so many parents whose children were trapped by substance abuse. And they really were caught by surprise. Um, so I wanted to have a resource out there that would educate parents, help them to become more knowledgeable about addiction, understand what some of the concepts are, and, and make it in a very user-friendly, non-technical format so that parents would have access to this information and give them the basics of what they need to know uh, about adolescent substance abuse, what type of treatments are out there, what the warning signs are, um, and, and an understanding of how, how drugs work in the adolescent brain. So I kept it to a little over 100 pages. Uh, it's a, a very user-friendly resource, and I wanted it to be a roadmap that's available for parents to understand adolescent substance abuse. That's great. 
and I read the book and it was, I think it's very informative. I, I think it'd be a great resource for parents. I, I want, first of all, t tell us briefly, just, I mean, every generation is different. So what are the substances that are most common for kids to get into these days? Well, alcohol and marijuana still are the two uh, most widely used substances that adolescents are using. And, and that's, that's been true for, for a number of years. Um, and, what we're seeing these days, though, that is a bit surprising is a tremendous increase, a surge of adolescents who have turned to vaping substances. So they're vaping nicotine and they're vaping marijuana. And vaping is just a process where you take, uh, take a substance, turn it into a vapor and then inhale it. So we're seeing a dramatic increase of, of vaping among adolescents. For example, over the last three years, the number of seniors who are vaping marijuana has gone from 9% to 22%. The number of, of seniors who have been vaping nicotine just in the last three years has gone from 18% of seniors to 34% of seniors. So we're seeing a dramatic increase in vaping in the adolescent population. Um, and you know, and I, I, I read those, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I read those statistics and my experience in counseling girls, sitting in circles with girls at my retreats, my summer camps, my, what I hear is it's way higher than 30%. The girls, maybe not girls who, who vape, you know, uh, you know, 20 times a day, but as far as the number of girls who vape, you know, somewhat regularly, if nothing else than just on the weekends, in my experience is higher. And it may very well be because um, these statistics come from the, uh, a study that, that, that's done every year by the University of Michigan, yeah. and it, it's self-reported. So it, these, these statistics may very well be underestimates. But uh, I would say that if we look at the trend, we're, we're seeing a trend where kids are turning more and more to vaping. Yeah. You know, the other thing, you mentioned it before, and I, I've, it's, it's always interested me. I like reading about the brain. And the adolescent brain is not the same as the adult brain. And that makes them more susceptible to addictions, to uh, lack of impulse control, and things like that. Can you talk about that for a minute, just so parents understand one of the reasons why it's so concerning that, that their teens may be starting with smoking or drinking or, or you know, using pot or whatever? Absolutely. The, the, the adolescent brain uh, is, a, is a brain that's in the process of being developed. It's in the process of maturing. It's not going to get fully developed until somewhere in the mid-20s. So unlike an adult brain, an adolescent brain is more vulnerable to being captured by addiction because it's in the process of still developing. And many of those higher order uh, reasoning skills that are found in the prefrontal cortex of the brain um, are, are some of the last parts of the brain to get fully developed. So an adolescent has difficulty, uh, you know, measuring advantages and disadvantages, pros and cons. And, 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 it, and, and the fact that their brain is still developing puts them at higher risk of not only experimenting with substances, but getting addicted to substances. And also, we can see many of the side effects of, of, of an adolescent brain using substances. For example, many of the adolescents that I worked with who were smoking marijuana, often mental 
multiple times a day, when their psychological test results would come back, I would see that the processing speed of their brain was below average. Uh, their short-term memory was impaired. Uh, their motivation was below average. So, you know, these substances introduced into a developing brain have the potential to to really do some significant changes. There was a study that was done at the Rochester Medical Center not too long ago that looked at both adults and kids who are vaping. And they found that both adults and kids who vape reported difficulty in concentrating and, 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 and remembering things. So uh, the fact that it's a, a, a developing immature brain makes, the, makes abusing substances far more risky for these adolescents. They need to protect their brain. And I think they, the teens need to understand that as well as their parents, because I, I've read some data. It's, it's been maybe a six months or a year where you know some states have been legalizing pot. And what they, what they found was when the attitudes of the adults in an area were more lax, like it's not that big of a deal, you know, it's, it's uh, legalized now, that kids used it more. And it wasn't necessarily about availability. It was more about that they didn't get the message that it was not good for their brains. They didn't, they didn't get that part. No, they don't. And, 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 and when society sort of puts out the impression that a, that a substance like marijuana is okay for adults, adolescents have a hard time of understanding, well, if it's okay for adults, why is it not okay for me? And, that, and that's a hard message for, for adolescents to, uh, to, to, to distinguish the difference in. Yeah. But there are some major differences. There are a lot of things that are okay for adults, um, you know, at least from a legal standpoint, uh, that are not only illegal, but much more damaging for, for the adolescent. Yeah, and I've also read that, that that the baseline level of dopamine in a teenage brain is lower than an adult's. But when they get stimulated by situations, experiences, drugs, whatever, that their release is higher, which makes them more susceptible to, uh, you know, not controlling their impulses. They get a bigger high, a bigger rush, and uh, therefore they're more vulnerable to addictions. Well, that's true. And, and, and we know that one of the reasons drugs work, whether it's an adult or an adolescent, is that these drugs stimulate the brain to produce huge surges of dopamine, which is a pleasure type of, of chemical in the brain. So when an adult gets a drug, they have a huge surge of dopamine. When a child does too, they have even a huger surge of dopamine, which means they get more of a pleasure from the drug. And then it becomes a vicious cycle where they, they, they want more and more and more of the pleasure. And oftentimes what I have found is that many of these children, many of these young men and women who are using a substance are often doing it to medicate an underlying issue that often goes undiagnosed. Yeah, that was my next question for you is, uh, I think a lot of parents wonder, they, like you said before, sometimes parents have no clue if their kids are using or how much they're using. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm curious about what you found with, with working with adolescents uh, in, your, in your time, uh, the reasons why. Why were kids using and or why did they end up abusing? Well, you're absolutely right. I think that one of the most common responses I got from parents after sitting down with them and going over their child's history of substance abuse and, and, and giving them a diagnosis was a response that, that was, I had no idea this was going on. Or if they did suspect their child was using a substance, their reaction was, well, I knew this was going on, but I didn't know it was this bad. Um, so parents are often caught by surprise by this. 
And um, many times, not only are they surprised to learn about their child's substance abuse history, they're also sometimes even more surprised to learn that there's an underlying psychological reason why their child has been using a substance. Um, for example, many of the girls and boys that I worked with who were smoking marijuana, when I asked them to help me understand why they were smoking marijuana, the number one answer that I got from them was, it helps my anxiety. Yeah. It helps me with my anxiety. So it may be anxiety. It may be depression. It may be uh, some type of trauma that they've experienced in their lives. Uh, could be any number of psychological reasons. But those often get undiagnosed in the process of doing an assessment. You know, we'll diagnose and we'll treat the substance abuse, but we're unaware of the anxiety or the depression or the eating disorder or the self-injury that's also accompanying it. That often gets overlooked and missed. Yeah. A lot of the girls that I work with, it's not all of them, but a lot of them, it's about self-medication. They're looking for something to to help them with things like, like you said, anxiety, anxiety and depression. I also, you know, I think a lot of parents have this view, like Nancy Reagan back in the 80s, that that peer pressure is about kids, you know, pushing your, their 14 or 18 year old or 16 year old, you know, to use drugs, use drugs. And and all the girls tell me that doesn't happen. That's not how, you know, there isn't the peer pressure like that. I think in most parents' minds is not really a reality. It's more like they're around people. They're at a party, whether it's vaping or whatever. I, I think it's just it's not so much a pressure thing as it is. I want to try it. The older kids do it. It's kind of cool. The cool kids do it. The popular kids do it. There's a lot of other reasons than being pushed. Is that what you found as well? I, th I think there's a lot of lot of different reasons that, you know, there's no one reason that cuts across all girls, for example. Uh, certainly, uh, a, a lot of them start using a substance because uh, of, of the peers that they're hanging around with, the activities that they do. Um, some of it is self-induced pressure that the girls are putting on themselves. Maybe it's to perform better academically. Could be a lot of reasons. Uh, but once they start and they experiment with that substance, um, um, and they get that pleasurable experience from it, uh, or they get that relief from anxiety, then they have found a substance that for them works, and they're more likely to continue down that road. So the, for the parents that are listening, what kind of things sh uh, should they be looking for uh, that would tell them that you might need to look more about, does my, does my daughter or my son have a, of an issue with uh, substance, sub using substances or, and or abusing them? Yeah, my book, my book lists uh, different warning signs that, that parents should, should look at. It, it, it gives additional warning signs for a child that might be self-injuring. It has a different set of warning signs for a child that might have an eating disorder. So my book lists those warning signs for those two uh, type of activities. Uh, but then there are other warning signs for alcohol and drugs that, that my book talks about too. But to sort of summarize it, um, um, in a short sentence, uh, parents should, should, should be very aware of any changes that they see in their child, things that are out of the ordinary, things that seem a little bit different, and not simply assume that the changes that they're seeing are a result of, you know, normal adolescent development. They may very well be, but they may be also uh, an indication, a red flag that something else is going on. So, for example, if you 
see a child that uh, in the past was very social and outgoing and all of a sudden becomes very isolating. Uh, that's a warning sign. That's a change in behavior that you need to be paying attention to. So again, my book lists a number of these warning signs, but to summarize it, I would say parents uh, pay attention to any changes that you see in your child's behavior, their attitude, their appearance. These could all be warning signs. I also, I would guess also, by the way, we're talking to Rick Capriola, who wrote a book called The Addicted Child. I think it's also probably would be good for parents. Some kids, they probably know just from when they were a kid, some kids are more uh, susceptible probably to addictive kind of behavior. Just like there are some girls who I work with who are just free spirits. And no matter what, they're going to try everything. Um, it's not a peer pressure thing. It's just like a, a personality or kind of a temperament kind of thing. So I'm, I'm wondering if it's also something that some signs that are not signs, but that parents might want to be more wary about certain kinds of kids with a certain kind of temperament. Um, I think, I think so. Um, you know, when we look at Boys and girls, for example, we know that boys are more likely to binge drink than girls. We know that boys have a higher risk of using over-the-counter drugs than girls. And we know that boys are more likely to become dependent on multiple substances. Uh, girls are more likely to turn to a substance if they're feeling depressed or they have some type of post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, boys, on the other hand, uh, we often see conduct disorders, behavioral disorders, and learning disorders. Um, so there are some differences between boys and girls. Um, if there's any family history uh, of alcohol or drugs, I think that's something that parents need to be aware of. Uh, it's not to say that uh, their child is destined to begin using using substances because maybe somewhere in the family history, someone has gotten into alcohol or drugs, but just be aware that they're more vulnerable because of that genetic predisposition. Um, you know, genetics accounts for maybe 40 to 60% of a person's vulnerability to become addicted, but then the remaining percent is environmental factors. And that's something that parents generally have some control over. We can't control our genetics, uh, but we do have some control over the environment environment that our child lives in yeah yeah if if parents oh, let, me, let me let me say this really quick some of the girls who i see who use are ones who have had a history of being more isolated kids who feel more disconnected or lonely that's not all yeah. of them and every girl who's lonely isn't isn't you know getting high and i see a lot of that for them and i'm, I'm curious about what you've noticed in the last mm, 12 months with covid how that's affected the number of addictions in adults and adolescents. I don't, I'm not worried about adults as much because I work with the kids, but I'm worried about adults, but because it's their parents also, but have you noticed a difference or the, uh, you know, a heightening of that? Yes. I think um, uh, this COVID epidemic ha has affected kids. It's affected families. It's affected adults. It's, it's propelled them into a different universe, so to speak, where, where kids have been removed from their social environment. They've been removed from their friends. They've been removed from their activities. They've almo almost been isolated away from their activities. And the result is we're beginning to see um, an increase in mental health issues among adolescents. The CDC, for example, has, has, has reported a 
a large increase in children and teens needing mental health care. Uh, since the pandemic, there's been about a 24, 25% increase in emergency room visits by grade school children, and about a 30% increase for teens urgently in need of mental health. And I think we're just beginning to scratch the surface of the mental health ramifications for kids as a result of this pandemic. It's affecting their sleep, it's affecting their eating, it's affecting their school performance, um, it's, it's, it's involving excessive worry on the part of these tenants. Um, so it, it is producing some serious mental health issues among teenagers. And all those things you mentioned, eating and sleep and school stress because of the virtual and all that, all that has added to their stress levels and made that worse, which I think sometimes is makes them more vulnerable to using unhealthy ways to take care of themselves, which it may end up be self-harm or and or using. You're exactly right, because all of these result in what I call intolerable thoughts, feelings, and memories. And whenever uh, somebody has a, a, an intolerable situation, they're going to find a way to get relief from it. And, 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 and many times they'll turn to a substance to, to medicate those intolerable feelings that they're having. We're also seeing an increase in compulsive type behaviors uh, involving things like video gaming. Um, you know, 70% of kids under the age of 18 um, are on consoles now. Uh, and, and, and it's, you know, it's, a, it's, it's combating their feeling of loneliness and their feeling of isolation. So they're, they're doing online games. Um, you know, in 2020, 2020, when the epidemic first hit, half of the children and teens were spending more than six hours a day on some type of video gaming. Okay, that's a 500% increase over 2019. Um, so we're seeing, seeing it translate into a compulsive type of behavior. This is, this is an example of what we call process addictions, behavioral addictions. We're talking with Rick Capriola. He's the author of a book called The Addicted Child, A Parent's Guide to Adolescent Substance Abuse. Um, another question, if you're a parent, uh, suspects that their that their daughter is using it. It may be because of the behavior changes you talked about. It could be because they found a couple of bottles of vodka in their bedroom, or they found, you know, uh, some vaping uh, uh, devices. It could be because they find a bag of pot or whatever. What should a parent do? What what's a, like a first first line step? I think the first thing you do is have a conversation with your child, you know, talk to them, uh, see what kind of a reaction you get, uh, see what kind of a discussion, this, uh, discussion you have. Now, uh, it may not work out well at all. You may have a child who denies everything. You may have a child that gets argumentative, gets angry, but at least you've made an attempt as a parent to have that first conversation and to express your concern, not to do it in an accusatory type of way, not to do it out of anger, uh, but, but more out of concern and to do it in a way that the child begins to understand that you really are concerned. 
um, and that's communication skills. Um, you know, we're, we're very good at listening to people's words. We're not so good at listening to people's feelings behind the words. And that's one of the reasons why I wrote the parent workbook that goes along with the main book. It helps parents understand the emotions that they're going through and learn some skills where they can communicate with their child. So the first step is to have a discussion with your child about what you found and how you're feeling about it and see how that goes. It may not go very well at all. Um, if that needs to proceed to the next step, then you need to get an assessment done. As a parent, you need to know what's going on. You need to know why it's going on. And the only way you're going to know that is to get an assessment. And the assessment has to go beyond just an addictions assessment. That's an important assessment because that's going to tell you, you know, the extent of the substance use. But you need more than that. And my book goes through and explains the different types of assessments that a parent should look at. One of which is an addiction assessment. Another one is a comprehensive psychological assessment so that you know what is or isn't going on underneath the sur surface. What do you do with the girl or boy? I work with girls, but girls are boys where you know that they're using like they're smoking pot and they don't see any problem with it and they are resistant to going to counseling and they um, and they're just they're not willing yet to look at it. What do you do with those kinds of kids? I would do with them what I did with the kids that I worked with at Menninger Clinic, um, you know, that that would that would come to me and, and they were using, say, marijuana. They were using a lot of marijuana. It didn't do any good for me to tell them it was an illegal substance. It wasn't any, it didn't do me any good to, to tell them that their parents didn't approve of it. They've heard all of this. But the one thing that I noticed worked with these kids was the neuroscience because they were all very bright. They were all very intelligent. When I could talk to them about how substances work in a developing brain, and I would show them a diagram of a brain and the different areas of the brain and what the different areas of the brain are responsible for. So that they could see there's an area of the brain that is responsible for coordination. There's an area of the brain that helps with memory. There's a, a different areas of the brain that are helped with different areas. They could see that. And then I showed them a diagram of a brain and I showed them where marijuana attached itself to the brain. And they were immediately interested. Now they could see why their short-term memory might not be as sharp as they wanted. Now they could see why their motivation wasn't quite what it was. So I used the neuroscience approach as a way to open that door to get their attention. And once I had their attention, then we could begin a discussion of where are we going to go from here. But the lecturing on how it's illegal and how parents don't like it, that, that meant nothing to them. What captured their attention was the science. And that's different than the old days when I was growing up where they would show you the brain on drugs and the brain not on drugs. <laughs> it's way more sophisticated than that. To, to explain about what happens in the brain that causes uh, the teens to lose their motivation where the well, THC uh, att attaches. I, I think it just affects the area of the brain which slows things down. Uh, you know, uh, teenagers on marijuana are, are, are not likely to, um, uh, to overdose on it. 
you can't overdose on marijuana, but they're much more likely to get hurt because they did something stupid under the influence of, 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 of marijuana. But it affects areas of the brain that can not only impact their coordination, impact their ability to remember short-term memory is affected, not long-term, but short-term memory, which, which could have implications for their work in the classroom. But it also affects their, their, their desire to do things, their motivation to do things. It sort of depresses that area. So they're much more likely just to hang around with friends smoking on a couch somewhere than they are to do their homework or they are to get up and do something else. It just takes that part of the brain and slows it down. I'm reading Michael Pollan's book, The Botany of Desire. I'm not sure if you've read that book. It's, it's probably 10 or so years old, but there's one whole section on, on marijuana. And he talks about how people were wondering why, um, why it, you know, the parts of the brain that you're talking about, like the memory part, for instance, you know, why would you lose your memory? Why is it, would that be important? Because people have been using pot for, you know, and drugs like that for thousands of years. And they were talking about how it's important for our brains to have an area that doesn't remember everything because our brain would get overloaded. So it's normal for our brains to have that part of the brain that kind of ignores most things and tries to focus on what's really important. But when the THC attaches to that part, then it really shuts it down. It's interesting. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. It's like there's, there's reasons why our brains react to things in, in the way that our brains react to things. Yes, yes. And, 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 Eventually, that translates into academic performance. Uh, it translates into social performance, has many different ramifications. It seems to me that it's hard for parents to find good treatment programs. Uh, maybe that's different in Houston or you were in Illinois or, or places, but I know around here, it's hard to find places where, number one, the track record is good and that parents can trust. I'm just wondering what your experience has been with that. Well, many of the children that I saw who came to Menninger uh, were, were referred sometimes by treatment centers, uh, sometimes by physicians, uh, people who knew of Menninger's reputation for dealing uh, primarily with psychiatric issues, but also substance abuse issues. Probably 60 to 70% of the patients at Menninger Hospital, although they come in for a psychiatric reason, have an underlying substance abuse issue as well. Um, but I, one of the reasons I wrote the book was exactly the point that you brought up. Parents are often caught at a loss of where do I go from here? I know my child has a problem. Where do I go for help? Um, so my book talks about the assessments that are needed, but often the question is, okay, well, where do I go to get these assessments? And, and I usually say, start with your family physician. They often can give you referrals to psychiatrists, psychologists. Um, talk to your school counselor. They can also yeah. be a good resource for, uh, for referrals. Uh, you have the mental health associations, the mental health people in your community that not only can provide resources, but can provide support and help for the parents as well. So there are resources out there. If it comes to treatment, um, one of the things that I point out in my book is that there is no one treatment that fits every kid because you have to look at each kid's unique diagnosis, what's going on, and you have to match that treatment to the diagnosis. So what I want parents to be able to read about in my book is the different options that are there. 
you know, um, some children will do very well in outpatient treatment where they will see somebody once or twice a week. Some, some kids need intensive outpatient treatment and some kids need residential treatment. And that's residential treatment is usually warranted when the underlying psychological issues are so severe that when coupled with the substance abuse, this is a child that's going to need six to 12 months of residential treatment. Uh, and, and it's usually the psychiatric or the psychological uh, underlying issues that are driving that kind of treatment. And, and the tough thing, I think this is true all over the country. I, I travel a bunch and give talks and things. I think the truth is that it's hard to get a psychiatrist. If somebody here in St. Louis says, I'm going to call a psychiatrist because my, my daughter needs to be seen because I've, you know, we realize she has these issues. They'll say, great, well, our next appointment is in six months, yeah. four months, five months, six months. I think that's pretty common all over the country, which is really makes it hard for parents. It does make it hard for parents, uh, uh, and they need to. Uh, the, when they need help, they need help, um, yeah. and and that's why I think you have to look at a range of mental health services that are out there. You may not be able to see a psychiatrist, but you you may more easily be able to see a psychologist or a neuropsychologist. Um, uh, so so there are a number of options out there, and the, the bottom line is, as a parent, you need to get treatment. Um, you know, you need to get, you need to open that door to treatment as soon as you can. Yeah. We're talking with Rick Capriola. His book is called The Addicted Child, A Parent's Guide to Adolescent Substance Abuse. One last question for you, if it's, if you still have, the, still have a, a moment. I'm just curious if, if as, as we sort of uh, end this, what, if you could think of one piece of advice for parents about this issue, what would it be? Well, I guess it would be um, two things. Uh, if you notice uh, or you suspect a problem, uh, don't delay. You know, uh, pay attention to it, uh, get the assessment done, uh, and get the help that's needed. Do, do, do not delay this. Uh, go on your instincts um, and, and, and get help, uh, not only for your child, but for yourself as well. Um, and the other thing I would say is, um, it's never too late to begin to develop that relationship with your child that's built on trust and communication. Whether your child is six, seven, eight, nine years old, or 15, 16, or 17 years old, you can learn some communication skills that will foster that, that, that trust in that, in, in that good, solid communication. You know, when we ask kids, what is it that keeps you from talking to your family about problems that you're having? The number one answer that we get back is a fear of being judged. Kids fear being judged by their family. So my advice is begin developing that relationship, that solid communication, trusting relationship. It may take time, but it can be done. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I, I find so many so often that a lot of times when parents are worried about their their daughters who are partying or are they're coming in late or they or they find a bottle of liquor or they find a jewel or whatever, their first their first response typically is punishment, and I was and they'll take their phone away, and I'll say why'd you take the phone away? And they'll say that's my only leverage. Yeah. It's the only thing that they'll listen to. And I'm, and I'm, I would, I always say to them is what you just said, which is your leverage, your best leverage is your relationship. 
So if you if you have a trusting relationship and your daughter knows that they can come to you without the judgment and all that and be able to talk things through, I said that's your best judgment, you know, in the long run. That's absolutely right. That that's 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 excellent advice. Um, you know, our first reaction as parents is often out of fear, um, and 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 that often leads to punishment, and that that usually results in the child pulling further and further away. So you're absolutely right. That trust, that communication, is the foundation upon which uh, you need to build with your child. Thank you so much for your, your information about adolescence and substance abuse. Thanks for the book. The book is called The Addicted Child, A Parent's Guide to Adolescent Substance Abuse by Rick Capriola. By the way, where can they get this book? They can get the book on Amazon. They can also get the book at the book's website, which is www.helptheaddictedchild.com. Thank you so much for coming on and, and giving our, our parents and our families some information. I think it's, it was awesome. Well, thank you. I really appreciate your time. And well needed. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. And thank you guys for listening in. And uh, this may be one of those things you listen to with your son or daughter, because this kind of information is important. And maybe that could be like a, a conversation starter. And even if you know your, your daughter, you find is not using, there's some of their friends are. The people they hang out with or the people they may go to parties with, although there's not many parties because of COVID, but the people they're hanging out with, some of them are. I always want parents to ask their daughter, if you're not, you know, vaping or whatever, and you're around some people who are, how do you not? That's not easy to do. And so conversations like that to me are invaluable. And it's not one conversation. It's a series of conversations over the months and years because they're, they change and their needs change and their friends change and all that changes. If you, uh, if you like these podcasts, please share them with your friends. I will be back here in a week or two with another podcast uh, called Raising Daughters. I appreciate you stopping by every week or so uh, to, hear the, uh, to hear this information. Dr. Tim Jordan here. Thanks for stopping by. I'll see you in two weeks. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.